Welcome to CII Radio. I'm Luke Holloway, editor at the Chartered Insurance Institute. In this episode, we're talking to Sean Fisher and Nick Turner about ways to maintain trust in insurance and financial services during the coronavirus pandemic. In this episode of the podcast, we're talking about ways to maintain trust during the coronavirus pandemic, and we're joined by Sean Fisher, Chief Executive of the CII, and Nick Turner, Sales and Agency Director at NFU Mutual and current President of the CII. To find out more about this podcast and for useful links, go to thejournal.cii.co.uk forward slash podcasts. Here's our conversation with Nick and Sean. Hello, Sean, and hello, Nick. Thank you for joining us today on CII Radio. Thank you, Luke. Hello. Thanks for giving us the opportunity. Um, no, you're very, very welcome. So perhaps if we could begin with why trust is so important in the financial services and, and insurance professions. And do you feel that trust the public has in insurance has been affected during this pandemic? Well, perhaps I'll go first on that one. I think trust is important everywhere in insurance. We have a product which is a promise, essentially. And as you know, theme of my presidential year has been to encourage individuals to think about how they build or destroy trust through their own individual actions throughout the year. And we've had uh, a number of letters in the CI journal that I've written about the constituent components of trust, uh, which have all had little essays on each of them as we've gone through the year. And hopefully they've been useful to so many people. But in this time of coronavirus, I think so many people's lives and businesses have been affected in some quite tragic and possibly permanent ways that insurance is definitely going to be a place where many will seek for some recompense or some indemnity of some sort. And I think we've got to think about very carefully how our actions under this environment build or destroy that trust. Just to uh, add to that, I think there's an element here as well of consistency. I, I mean, Nick's you know, been very clear that uh, sort of reliability and consistency is is actually one of the great things that you need for trust. And I think, you know, as a sector, when there's been past crises, I, I'm just thinking in my time, you know, there was Chernobyl, there's been the World Trade Centre. I think one of the things that the sector has done really well is come together to find a, a really good approach to a crisis because by definition a crisis can show up things which are not perfect and it can cause some confusion so the only way to handle that actually is on a collective basis and to try to come up with a, a you know a, a really good outcome for everyone and that does require sort of calm thinking and collective action which is very well motivated for the benefit of everyone what can those in insurance and financial services do to maintain trust with their customers, especially at a time when many of them may be more vulnerable than usual? To my mind, it's really about being proactive. And, and I reckon that there are many customers out there who the, their needs for insurance will have changed as a result of coronavirus. You know, you take, take uh, my own vehicle, for example. I've got a car that uh, comes to the end of its PCP. And I know I've seriously uh, considered whether I get a new vehicle and it sits on the drive just depreciating and do I need the vehicle? Do I need the, any insurance? Don't need any of that stuff. So I think uh, that proactivity, make sure and cover 
meets the revised needs of consumers is a really uh, important thing that insurers and brokers and intermediaries uh, up and down the country probably are already very being very proactive around to make sure those covers absolutely fit with the, the risks that people are running in this different environment. So I think that's the first thing. Make sure that we're proactive and that we are close to our customers in this difficult time. To add to that, um, I think we as the CII, we'd, we would applaud a couple of actions that were very swiftly taken, in fact, by the ABI. I think one of the things when you when you have a situation like this, the ABI moved quickly on was to get as many clear commitments from the market as quickly as possible on all of the most important consumer types of insurance, that there would be no application of any kind of technicalities in relation to the current crisis. So, I mean, Nick's just given us a possible example, but other things like like on travel claims or unoccupied properties or people who were then going to help the NHS suddenly using their cars for different reasons than they'd been registered for, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And, and in fact, the ABI have got brilliant stuff on their website about all these commitments from the market and what technical clauses, you know, wouldn't apply in the current situation. And then I think the other thing is to encourage payment of non-disputed claims, get it out there, get that done. And at and I think as you've seen in the last few weeks, there have been two figures have come out, one from the ABI saying that, in fact, you know, £1.2 billion worth of claims have already been paid or are in the process of being paid. And then Lloyds of London last week responding to the PRA and FCA actually said that their figure is more like £5.6 And those are claims which are, as I've said, are, are either being paid as we speak or else are in train uh, to be paid. So, you know, th- there are very, very significant uh, numbers of claims actually being paid and handled during this crisis. Sean, um, how is the Chartered Insurance Institute supporting members and the wider profession during this time? Thank you, Luke. I think there's two buckets of this. As you know, we, we're both a membership organisation and, and obviously uh, a Royal Chartered awarding body. So if I just mention the, the awarding body side of things, which is our exams and qualifications, I mean, everyone is aware that we had to, at very short notice, actually put on hold our April exam session and that we had to very quickly let everyone know what was happening and also to rebook as many people people as we possibly could for our subsequent sessions in July and October. So to put it this way, uh, you know, a big concentration of ours is to ensure that whatever the circumstances, by the time we get to July and particularly October, we are able to go ahead with all of those qualifications for people who've obviously studied hard um, and also for regulatory requirements. You know, some people are obviously, you know, nearing the end of their time to uh, complete their qualifications. So remote invigilation, obviously, is a big part of a modern way of doing um, exams. And we we had, in fact, contracted with a provider who, who would have made all of this happen as from next year. But they've been very good about allowing us to pull forward quite a few of our plans, which, you know, we, we will obviously be trialling in July and October. Put that to one side and then talk about membership. Obviously, a big commitment from us for our members is, well, both the wonderful journal, obviously, that you edit, uh, Luke, but uh, perhaps more importantly, on a day-to-day basis, the uh, continuous professional development that we make available to all of our members. Clearly, a lot of that was based on face-to-face and events, and none of which is obviously feasible at the moment. But I have to take my hat off to both the central team at the CII and the PFS and our other societies, the speed with which we've been able to take 
largely a face-to-face environment and put it into online content, webinars, blogs, all, all the sort of wonderful things you can do with the social media and digital technology these days. There's been a very, very quick response to that. And also I take my hat off to the our wonderful local institutes, because as far as our insurance membership is concerned, they are very, very important as producers and, and providers of CPD. And uh, I think a lot of people will have seen the stuff that's now going out from a lot of the local institutes, which also is now online. And, and I think that's a huge testament to everybody that they've been able to, to do that so quickly. I just like to say that I hope we feel that this is actually a progressive thing as well. I wouldn't really want us to feel that we should immediately go back to doing everything face to face when we come out of this. I think we've made some massive steps forward for the future. And, and, and I'm very keen that we actually build on those and consolidate those things for the future. Thank you, Sean. Yeah, it's been great to see how the organisation has adapted to what is a very difficult situation. Nick, recently the FCA said it would look at business interruption wording. Can the profession expect to see changes in this area and, and how important is clarity and communication when, when it comes to insurance cover? Well, I think, I think Luke, you've, you've hit on a very hot topic at the moment for the insurance industry and uh, many customers who feel aggrieved that business interruption cover in many cases, in fact, the vast majority of cases won't apply to this uh, particular pandemic issue that, that has been created for so many people up and down the country, a, a real issue. I think we've got to wait and see what comes out of this because, as you know, there's currently action groups being created against certain insurers. And I think certain insurers will have different strengths of wording in their own policies. But really, the lessons, I suppose, that come out of this for us will be how do we make consumers and businesses more engaged with the policy wordings in the future so they get a real sense of the meaning meaning of what these these sometimes fairly technical wordings can actually mean. And I do in many cases need to be fairly technical because if you haven't uh, written a wording very precisely to protect both the insurance company and bring clarity to the consumer, then that's where the problems lie. So I think really I don't, I don't want to uh, predict too much as to what will come out of this because I think this one will run for some time. But clearly as an industry and a profession, we've got to work really hard to emerge from this situation with a renewed sense of purpose to build that trust with consumers, which I think certain consumers, it will be more challenging to do, certainly those who feel agree. So I think there are many things that we can do, which is, again, it comes down to, for me, again, I come back to being proactive around covers and talking to people all the time, uh, making sure that they are engaged with their policy wording going forward. But uh, we'll have to get through this and then we'll have to look again and see what else we can do. But as I say, if you look at my organisation, for example, we're making sure that we are focusing on charitable support where we can. We are also making sure that we're not just looking at national charities, but also local charities to make sure that help and support gets to those people who are in real need. And I think there's also things to think about across the UK population as a whole uh, around mental health in terms of many people are trapped in some sense uh, in their own homes and some will be coping with that very well and some won't. And you can imagine the situation if you're not particularly good at being trapped at home and your business is failing. You could imagine that many people will need help and support. And whilst I don't think we're equipped to be counsellors, we can be good friends and very supportive of those people where we can. So 
I think I would encourage everybody to think about everybody that's affected in the UK as fellow human beings and do what they can to support on a personal level. What kind of positive actions have we seen from insurers aiming to build trust during the pandemic? And Sean, what kind of positive work have you seen from a point of view of the CII and the organisation? Have you been pleased to see how the uh, the professions reacted? The reaction, or you know, to business interruption is obviously the you know the great elephant in the room. But I think we have to be very careful that we don't say everything is about that. I think I pointed out earlier that you know there's lots of other classes of insurance where lots of claims are being paid so you know travel event cover even weird things like pet insurance and motor insurance you know that you wouldn't think were affected but actually they are you know you've got employers liability insurance you've got protection products you know life products there's almost every form of insurance is affected one way and another so although the business interruption issue can't be ignored and shouldn't be ignored it is also important to put the sector response in the context of all the insurances that are, that are provided and then to pay credit to that but then come back to the situation that we are in in relation to the business interruption area and I think as Nick has said where there needs to be collaboration is to bring clarity around that everybody's seeing all these sort of sensational headlines from America particularly about you know retro payments and all, all of that sort of stuff and, and I, I think we've all just got to appreciate that actually for Forcing insurers to pay claims that were never intended and are not factually covered is destroying the sector, which is what the volume of potentially the volume of claims here could do, actually doesn't benefit anyone. And just by sort of scale of what we're talking about here, if you think of the relativity, I've just said to you that between Lloyd's and the ABI, we're talking about something like 7 billion of claims to be paid anyway. And then you go over and you say, how many micro and SME businesses are there in this country? And there's millions of them. So there's there's about 5 million micro and SME businesses. And you actually look at the amount of money that the Chancellor in on a day has had to pump into the economy to actually even marginally support some of those businesses. And that at a minimum is 330 billion not 6 billion, 330 billion. And that's just between May and the end of June, essentially. So this scale of the potential exposure here is colossal. And that is why there never was blanket coverage for this kind of event under insurance policies, albeit there are specific insurers who have provided cover for this. And in fact, I think we all saw the example of Wimbledon. I mean, Wimbledon has bought specific coverage for pandemic, well, for a whole range of things, but pandemic in particular for many years. And theirs is a legitimate policy, legitimate cover. And as far as I can see from any coverage, the, the claim's going to be paid. I think you also saw the coverage from Marsh, uh, the big broker who said, you know, they've been making pandemic cover available for, you know, many years. And in fact, you know, they've found it really difficult to sell because, of course, it's expensive. And that's the other issue is, you know, how do we come out of this with an affordable solution? That's the issue. It's not just the insurance sector coming up with a product, but it's how can micro and SME businesses actually afford it? Um, And I can just give you an example from the CII's own perspective. I mean, we didn't buy the pandemic extension uh, a number of years ago because the cost of it was to any normal small business, but it was was high. So we didn't buy it. Um, And we're not alone 
alone in that. <laughs> so it is a it is a complex issue with quite a number of facets to it. And, you know, we will all have to very maturely reflect on this and work out how we ha- handle it for the future. So that um, brings us to our, our final point to both of you. Looking forward, what lessons would you hope that the profession um, will take from the COVID-19 pandemic? I think there's one opportunity that comes out of all this, which is uh, an opportunity for government and the insurance profession to work together, perhaps, to make sure that if this does happen, and it will happen again at some point, that between insurers and the government, we are in a better place to respond to this in a way that keeps the economy going perhaps better than than we've managed to achieve this time. And I think hopefully we'll we'll come out of this and everyone will bounce back really quickly. And this will be confined to history as a, a bad period for the economy, but nothing that damaged us irreparably. But I still think there's some good lessons to learn how we can work together with government better to um, to have a better solution in, in place. You know, along the lines of what Sean was saying, there's something that more can afford. But on the other hand, I mean, if your business has gone into uh, incredibly difficult positions or even administration as a result of this coronavirus pandemic, it seems to me you're really not anything that is going to put a smile on your face in that situation. And it's very easy to lash out at the, at the insurance profession. But I think in the meantime, I come back to where we can be very proactive right now. And that is around really facilitating cover changes to make sure they're appropriate. We're, we've seen some creativity in the in the industry around premium refunds that'll be right for some and not right for others. Uh, again, those are, that's an area fraught with complexity, but I, I love the spirit of the idea. And I also think that having uh, abilities to be sympathetic and flexible where appropriate with customers who are in difficulty is also a good thing to do. Of course, with insurance being only a 12-month contract, there's limited flexibility that, that many insurers will be able to provide simply because you know we're not credit underwriters in many cases. So I think, again, that is an area that is challenging one, but one I think we should try and face into. So, you know, I, I think there's a lot of lessons that will come out of this where we can always do things better. But overall, I come back to Sean's point that where those people are properly covered for pandemic cover, they're getting their claims paid. And I think the rest of the community, we need to just work very proactively, proudly with, with our customers and increasingly make them clear as to what their policies offer and, and do and the risks that they run personally. I mean, if I could just, you know, add to what Nick said, I think we've known for a while and the government are in this as well. I mean, we have known that in many ways, the last two big elephants in the room in terms of how on earth do you provide proper coverage for them are cyber and pandemic. And we can't pretend that there haven't been discussions about these. You've you've seen the, the press coverage that certainly pandemic was something that government were looking at in some detail a few years ago. And certainly, you know, when Julian Anoisi as, as CEO of Poolry, the, the sort of the terrorism pool, he's had quite a lot of discussions about, you know, what some of the ways to deal with these other two huge systemic problems could be. Now, of course, classically, there's been a lot of focus actually on cyber. So I'm not saying that it, it's solved, but there's been, you know, significant attention paid to cyber. And it's just classic of life that if you put something slightly on the back burner because you're really thinking about something else, you know, life has a terrifying habit of actually getting even with you for not thinking about everything at the same time. And it's classic that actually the big problem we've had globally has been pandemic rather than cyber, which is sort of what everybody expected. But the point is both of them sit alongside terrorism, war and nuclear as such catastrophic events that it is very hard for private companies and shareholder funded companies to be the only solution for those 
situations. And if private companies are to make their contribution to those kind of losses, there has to be a societal and governmental conversation about what happens if those losses become so huge that they could overwhelm any private solution. I would hope that that's now that we continue those conversations around these two areas where we haven't yet fully established what the solution is. We've obviously made some good progress on natural catastrophe, so flood in particular, which affects this country in particular. Because, you know, insurers can be overwhelmed by natural catastrophes, you know, as well as man-made events. So, you know, we're on a journey, but we just have to keep making progress with providing people with the, the protection that they need. Well, thank you, Sean, and thank you, Nick, for joining us today. Um, we appreciate there's a huge amount to consider and, and the situation is, is ongoing, but um, we really appreciate you speaking with us and I'm sure it'll be a huge interest to our listeners. So, so thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for listening to this episode of CII Radio. If you'd like to find out more, you can visit thejournal.cii.co.uk forward slash podcasts, or you can find us on Twitter at CII Group. So until next time, stay safe and thank you for listening to CII Radio.